Good night, Roanoke. It is Wednesday, February 24th, 2021. I'm Lance Gunner Wines, reporting live, well, kind of, uh, from Roanoke, Virginia. Yeah, I know it's a little different than my usual uh, Winchester's favorite talk show. Uh, so I guess tonight I'm Roanoke's favorite talk show. And this is a very special uh, Virginia bar exam episode of the podcast. I just thought that I'd check in and get some stuff down. I was going to say on paper, but I guess more on record uh, just about this week and about, you know, my day today and what's been going on. And I, you know, thought it might be insightful to some people. Maybe they'd like to hear uh, about what it's like, uh, about my experience, because usually my experience is a little different than everyone else's. But yeah, I figured I'd just check in, um, you know, and put something down about my week and get things going. So I appreciate everyone tuning in. You know, this is Late Nights with Lance, uh, Roanoke's <laughs> favorite late night talk show. I'm your host, Lance Gunner Wines. All right, guys. So I guess I should start this podcast off uh, discussing why I'm here in Roanoke. Uh, I took the, well, I guess I should start from the beginning. So I was born on Sunday, July. No, I'm kidding. Um, I graduated back in May of 2020, if you can call it that. I got a diploma and a PowerPoint presentation that I watched in my kitchen, um, which counted as my graduation. And then I, you know, enrolled to take the bar exam uh, in July of 2020. So, you know, you do all that stuff. You fill out the application. You get all the paperwork, the documentation. You pay the obnoxious price. Um, and then, of course, you pay the even more uh, triple, quadruple obnoxious price for the, the bar exam uh, prep program, whatever you choose. It's really expensive, you know, but I could talk about how elitist uh, it is another time. So, you know, this was back in the spring of 2020. Uh, signed up for that. It was pretty excited for that. And, you know, did my studying, did the program. Of course, I had a lot of stuff going on uh, at the time, as I always do. So it's not really any any different than usual. And I took the exam. It was the last week in July, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday. It's two days. The first day is the SA day, the Virginia day. And the second day is the MBE. So the first day, you have, it's all divided into three hour sessions. So the first three hour session is Tuesday morning. It's five essays. And of course, each essay has, you know, three, four, maybe five different subparts to it. Uh, so the first three hours, you have five essays to do, which, you know, it seems like a lot of time. And then it's it's really not. And then you do a one hour lunch break. And in July, they didn't provide food because it was like the one of the many peaks of the COVID pandemic. So they kind of wanted to <laughs> just, uh, you know, stray away from contact. I didn't eat anyway, because of my anxiety. I either I wake up with diarrhea. And if I eat, I am nauseous and vomit. So I just didn't uh, eat lunch, so I sat in my car or whatever. And then the second three-hour session on the Tuesday, uh, there are four essays, again, with multiple subparts. And then there were 10 multiple-choice questions. And I know you're thinking 10 multiple-choice questions. That's so random. And that's because on the first day, the essay day, the essays can have the MBE topics, so like the general law topic. I don't even know how many there are at this whatever. There's like seven of them, I think, that are all tested across the country. And then there are like, I don't know, 15 Virginia-specific topics. And so the essays can have either of the, uh, and what they don't test specifically with Virginia law in the essays, they'll use the 10 multiple choice questions. So 
you do the nine essays, and then you have 10 random multiple choice questions that are Virginia-specific law, which is fun. And all of that is worth 100 points. So each essay is worth 10 points total. So I guess each subpart is typically worth like two points. And then each multiple choice question is worth a point. That's all on their website, just basic scoring, whatever. Uh, And so then you go home and you cry a little bit and you go back the next day on Wednesday and that's the MBE day. And that's in normal times back in the olden days, uh, everyone who was taking the bar exam would do the MBE on the same day. Uh, It didn't have to be the same number of questions because some states use more or less MBE multiple choice. But back in the good good old days, everyone would take the MBE at the same, some sort of unity. Um, But in this instance, Virginia is different because Virginia did actually have a July bar exam. I think there were only like, I don't know, five, I want to say like five states that did it in person when it was scheduled. And Virginia does the first three hour session. You have 100 multiple choice questions. Then you have another lunch break, uh, or as I call it, a sit in your car and think about life break. And then you go back and the final three hour session is an additional 100 multiple choice question, you know. Seems pretty simple. They tell you when the results are con- uh, going to come out, or at least when they expect it to. You sign like a waiver uh, thing saying that you're not going to call and ask what day the results come out because you have to pay attention. And yeah, then you go on your merry way. And I think it took about 10 weeks last year. So I took the exam the last week of July. I found out on October 16th that I did not pass. It was Friday, October 16th. Found out that I didn't pass. There's a whole big story about that. That you know, a lot of people know that story. It's not a pretty one. It's not one that I'm proud of. It's not one that I like to share. Um, just some difficult family time. You know, obviously I was upset that I had failed. Uh, I shouldn't say failed because you don't really fail. You don't pass. You know what I mean? It's not like you fail and it's whatever. It's you pass or you don't pass. You know, I was upset that I didn't pass because you know I have so much weight on external validation and my ego, but my family seemed pretty upset and they didn't refrain from sharing that. And it kind of created a a family schism uh, that I still haven't really recovered from. And it was rough. Obviously then everything else that happened in the last year and, you know, moving into the fall and winter of 2020 and what have you, regardless it was rough. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do necessarily because of the financial burden of taking the bar exam. I didn't know if I would get to take it again or if I should take it again. But luckily or unluckily or just out of the goodness of her heart, you know, my mom uh, was willing to front the cost to take it again. And so in December, I guess it was early December, I signed up to take the February bar exam. It had to have been early. No, I guess it was December's when you pay. It was more like November, I guess. I think it was more November because December definitely would not have given you enough time to study. But you do most of the studying in, you know, late December, all of January, and then February up to the the test. Um, I'm going to say it was like beginning of December, just because. Uh, And of course, because I didn't pass, I had to retake the entire exam. Um, because of my, the way my scores were split. Um, I did pretty well on the exam on both the essay section and the multiple choice. Um, not well enough to pass, but too well to have either of those scores 
carried over, if that makes sense. So my score was was all right. Obviously, I it wasn't what I needed, uh, but it was high enough that I, I could hold my head up high. But because of the way it's uh, tabulated, both of my scores um, individually were not high enough for either of them to transfer over, but together in the way they tabulate the score, it was still a pretty good score. So I was like proud of it, but I was like, damn, like I missed it by that much where I could have only had to do one day of this bar exam. But that's okay. I felt like I'd rather do the whole thing over again anyway, just to prove that I could do better. So then because I didn't pass, I got to redo the Barbary uh, bar exam test prep program. That's a mouthful. That's what she said. Uh, but yeah, so I got to do Barbary again and I had all my books and everything. And, you know, it's like a computer program. Um, for those who don't know, it's essentially like online learning mixed with like books that you have on hand, like a study program you have on hand. Um, I think it's like 10 weeks, something like that. So yeah, December, beginning of December would be when it started all of December, all of January and then February up to the exam. Um, it's a shit ton of stuff. I mean, it's a lot of knowledge. Um, but yeah, so I got to do that for free, which was nice. Um, of course the circumstances weren't nice, but it's good of them to have that sort of passage guarantee where, you know, if you pay for it and you don't pass, you'll get to do it for free until you pass. I feel like that's, that's fair. Um, so yeah, so then I spent, um, December and January, in and out of studying. Uh, when I say in and out, I mean because there was a lot of stuff going on at home. And, you know, with Jose being sick, you know, I spent some time worrying about that and uh, worrying about my own issues <laughs> and whatnot. And, you know, going in and out of mental breakdowns and, and the usual shit. Um, but I did the studying, did the programs, and then that leads us to about where we are today. I should say this week, I guess. And so I, I'm trying to think of where I should pick up uh, on this. I guess I should go with the plan. So basically, uh, the test is in Roanoke, Virginia. So it's about three hours, three and a half hours from Winchester. It's straight down 81, you know, closer to like Blacksburg and Charlottesville and where all the life happens in Virginia. Uh, uh, and so last time I took the bar, I, I should say the first time I took the bar, I was here with Bob and we stayed at a hotel almost right off of uh, the 81, I guess, corridor uh, where it splits. Uh, And this time I was going to go by myself, uh, partly due to, you know, the fallout from my not passing the first time back in October. And partly because I just I needed this for myself. This was more for me. Um, I found this cute little cottage shack cabin thing um on airbnb which is really my first time using airbnb myself and it's at this wedding venue type estate in the middle of old town roanoke and it's a one room uh cabin with a little bathroom with a toilet that my big ass thighs have trouble sitting on because it's in this little crevice if you've seen my pictures on facebook a little shower that's smaller than the showers at Shepherd, and then a little closet that is kind of like a kitchenette as well. Uh, a lovely bed. I guess it's a full-size bed, memory foam mattress, has a television, internet connection. It's basically like Granny's 
house in Kentucky, but with modern amenities, which is cool. And you pull up in the driveway. I don't know. It's like I have my own place. Like I'm living in a tiny house, which is kind of like a dream of mine. If the tiny house was in the Outer Banks. But um, so I, I got that for three nights, came down on Monday, was going to stay Monday night. Tuesday's the first day of the test. Stay Tuesday night, Wednesday, which is today. It's the second day of the test. Stay Wednesday night so I don't have to drive home, have to do all that packing. And then tomorrow, um, I'll hit the road back to Winchester. But yeah, uh, that's pretty much my week. Um, week at a glance, is that what they say on the iPhone? Um, but yeah, so I guess more specific. So I'll get into it. Monday, you know, I um, I drove down here. And of course, it was like snowing and raining in Winchester, which was like major BS because every time I drove from Winchester to Delaware or Delaware to Winchester when I was in school, it rained. There was never a Friday afternoon or a Sunday night where it didn't rain. And I kept track. I I kept tally every single time that I drove to and from the Delaware Law School, it rained. And driving for three and a half hours in the rain, whether it be on the Pennsylvania Turnpike or on 95, is a motherfucker. Pardon my French. And I got tired of it. And so the idea that I had to do another three and a half hour drive in the snow uh, after I thought I was done with that was really grinding my gears. Uh, But luckily, uh, once I got out of Frederick County, pretty much. Um, it was clear. It was like 55 and sunny. And I was like, wow, isn't that a real remark on Winchester at this point? Um, it was a beautiful drive, beautiful three hour drive. I was listening to, uh, John Mayer. I listened to his live album at Nokia, uh, back from 2007, the entire way, played the album the entire way through. Uh, and then I got to this little house, typed in my password. I'm not going to tell you what it is. Uh, but anyway, before you, before I got to that, sorry, just skip this. So you drive, you know, you get off of 81 and there's like a 81 type other highway road. I don't know what you would call it. Anyway, basically how you get into actual Roanoke and on the way in, you go through, like you see the city from the highway, right? Cause it's elevated and it kind of reminds me of like Scranton, honestly, like I feel like if I had to compare Roanoke to any other city I had been to, it would probably be Scranton, Pennsylvania. Uh, just because there's, it's like old industrial, uh, and there are still remnants of like that old industrial and then golden age in like the 30s, 40s, 50s. And then you see like the modern Americana come in in the 60s and 70s, and then that's modernized uh, from there because there's not really any culture in between there. Uh, But you definitely see like the, like I said, the old industrial into the mid-century Americana uh, and then the modernized, trying to modernize uh, a rural city as much as you can, which is kind of like a uh, oxymoron, a rural city. Uh, But that's what Roanoke is. That's what most of Virginia cities are. They're rural cities. Uh, So yeah, I definitely would compare it to Scranton. And you come in and there are these uh, old like billboards on the top of the buildings, like old signage on the top of the buildings that have probably been there since, you know, the 40s. And there's this one huge uh, Dr. Pepper sign. It's like a, I I wouldn't even call it a billboard. It's like a Dr. Pepper bottle cap. It's probably, I don't even know how tall. It's it's gigantic on top of this building. And I think it's from like early 
in the 20th century. Uh, it's been there. It's like it's been restored. It's a national landmark. It's pretty dope. I kind of thought about uh, photoshopping my podcast logo onto it so that it would look like the sign. But the what I'm getting at is obviously it's dope because I love Dr. Pepper and I love signage and advertising and Americana, but it reminds me of the electric city sign in Scranton at the top of one of the buildings in the center of the city. So there's like this big, you know, electric city. What Scranton, what the electric city, we call it that because of the electricity, you know, call poison control. If you're bit by a spider that, you know, from the office, it is the electric city because of its uh, history with coal mining and the railroad there that transported the coal. Um, but they have this big sign in the center of the city on top of this huge building. And it's around neon sign that says the electric city. And that's pretty much what this looks like. That's what I was getting at with my whole um, merger reference there. Anyway, um, where was I going with this? Oh, yeah. So the sign was dope. Drive into town. It's pretty cool. Again, like I said, it reminds me of Scranton. Uh, but if Scranton is like when you have like those like what's the word like you know how they're like cold tones when you like edit a photo and you could change the tone to like cold and everything's kind of like a shade of blue that's Scranton and then Roanoke is like if you took the exact same city and changed the tone to like warm tones and everything's like a weird orange um amber type thing so yeah So I get to the little house, type in my password, you know, beep, boop, beep, boop. Um, And yeah, super sick. Uh, I ordered Chipotle, of course, you know, for delivery because we're in a pandemic and my order got fucked up. But that always happens to me. Anyone who who's listening, who is like really close with me, uh, who like like really close knows that I've never gotten an order right in food service ever in my life never in my life have i ordered food at a restaurant or from a restaurant unless of course you know i'm i'm there in person at like a make your own type station like if i'm at chipotle in person or if i'm at subway or jimmy john's in person but i'm saying you know order it without my supervision never in my life have i gotten an order and it was served correctly ever and i used to get really angry about this uh, especially, you know, in my last relationship, it was kind of like a running joke. Um, you know, and I have a short fuse and a short temper and I would get super butthurt about that because like, bro, I worked in food service. And if I got orders incorrect, when I worked in food service, you just get fired. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like back in like 2014, 2015, you work in food service and you screw up that many times, you just get fired. But somehow every time I order at every restaurant, at every city in the eastern seaboard, I get it wrong and nothing happens because I may be super butthurt. And as Kelsey Camacho pointed out, I hold things in and bottle things up and then blow up on people later. Uh, But when it happens, I don't do anything because it's just like a fucking sorry. I keep using that word. It's like a freaking joke that my order is always wrong. And it's like. It's like back when I worked at Panera and I didn't get a break for like 250 days in a row and I counted how many days it's like that with ordering food. And it's like, well, how many days this is a total tangent, of course, but it's like how many how many times can I order and it'd be incorrect every single time, um, you know, constantly. And that's just how it goes. I mean, straight up. So it's kind of like a running joke. I assume that God or the universe does it because they know that I can maybe I need the 
the lesson in ego, and or maybe it's because they know that they can mess up with me because I'm not going to like, you know, I'm not like a Karen or anything. Like I, I, I am internally, I think everyone's an internal Karen, but externally, like I'm not going to pop off on these people. I'm going to just go in the car and pop off on myself in the car. Uh, anyway, where was I going with this? Oh yeah. Order Chipotle. It was wrong. I was super butthurt. And of course, because their delivery system is like Chipotle delivery, but it's through DoorDash, they couldn't do anything. So then they refunded me a very ambiguous 15%, which is like their standard policy, but it didn't cover the thing that I ordered uh, that I didn't get. So they kind of dicked me out of that, but that's okay. I'm used to it. Um, Where was I going with this? So yeah, then, you know, I did a little studying. I was getting kind of anxious, you know, slept in this awesome memory foam bed. And wake up. Okay, so we're on Tuesday. Sorry about the Chipotle rant. <sighs> I know they're not listening because my listenership isn't, like, super huge. Uh, but if Chipotle ever hears this, I'm upset. Um, <laughs> and so Tuesdays is the essay day I wake up. I, I put on my new suit. And there's a whole story about the suit and how, you know, I didn't own a suit, uh, like an actual suit, until I was in my second year of law school, I guess. And even then it's super expensive and it's like you want poor kids to go to school and do things to raise themselves and their families out of poverty and do good and, you know, be best, I guess. Um, But then higher education is extremely elitist and the field of law is extremely, extremely elitist to the point where like a poor kid can't even afford the right clothing to wear to be learned, learned in law. You know what I mean? Like, it's hard enough to afford school, let alone the fact that the outfits you need for school cost like $300 a piece just for the outfits. And you have the books that are like the same price. I'm not going to get into that. But yeah, so basically it's a big deal um, that I, yeah, you know, have gotten uh, this this type of clothing. And I, you know, appreciate my mom for making sure that I, I always look good and I always dress the part, even if I, <laughs> even if I don't act the part, I always look the part. Um, and you know, she took me out and got me a, a night cause I've gained weight. Let's be honest. I'm a fat fuck. Um, big fat, ugly fuck. And I've gained weight, uh, because of my depression and because of COVID and because of my sedentary lifestyle and because of studying for the bar and because, you know, nobody wants me and I've been heartbroken about my ex-girlfriend for like fucking an eternity. So, yeah, I kind of gained some some depression weight. And so I needed a new suit. And my mom was gracious enough to, uh, again, uh, front the bill for that, uh, which I appreciate. She bought me a very nice um, Michael Strahan. Shout out Michael Strahan uh, suit. It's very beautiful. Uh, so I appreciate that. Felt like a real lawyer. Uh, so put on my nice suit, pretty cool. Put on my, uh, talcum powder. Cause I chafe, uh, as I mentioned, my big thighs a few minutes in, um, and go to the bar. And of course it's, it's in person. I think it's one of the only States that did it in person and will continue to do it in person, but they take extra precautions. It's at the Berglund center in Roanoke, uh, which is a basketball arena event center. There's actually, there's like a contemporary art uh, performance center. So like a theatrical performance center. Then there's a concert venue 
which is where I took the test this time. And then there's a basketball athletic arena, which is where I took the test before because there were more people uh, and it's the largest of the three. But it's a really big complex. It's really nice. Uh, so go in there and, you know, they check your temperature and shoot laser beams into your forehead to make sure that you don't have COVID. Uh, and then you go through the metal detector and make sure you don't have a gun or something. You know, uh, honestly, it, and this is a, a pretty dark joke, so I guess this is more for Alex Pooner if she's listening. But if you're taking the bar and you have a gun, you probably used it before you got to the bar. I'm just saying, it's a it's a dark time. Um, and I know a lot of my friends who took the bar with me this week um, have been posting on Facebook about how rough it was. Uh, but anyway, regardless, you know, go through the metal detector. Of course, I went off because I wear suspenders. Uh, so I got checked, which is pretty cool. I was hoping for a full cavity search, but uh, they didn't oblige. And you go in there and you take your your seat. And so basically you're at like one of those tables where if you go to church and they have like a church event and they got like those fold out tables, not the wooden ones, but like the hard plastic ones that are pretty nice. Uh, they got those pretty much lined up everywhere up the ass. And so you have a table to yourself. Then there's a full table in between you and the next table, which is where the other person is. And then there's like a table on the end. So the table establishes the six foot uh, distance for social distancing. And there's a butt ton of rows before in July, just to give you a scope of what it was like when I took it in July, I was in row 79 and I was just in one of the portions of the center. So there were about 80 rows of people in the athletic arena in July, not to mention the people taking the test in the other areas of the Berglund center. Well, this time I was in the, um, concert venue area and i was in row 41 shout out to dave matthews i'll get into that in a sec uh but there were only like 50 rows this time so much less people taking the exam in february which is nice uh so you go in there and you put all your stuff out you're only allowed to have certain objects like you can't have a lanyard or a key ring you can only have your actual car key so your flob uh, is it flob? No, it's fob, I think. Whatever. You can have your your flippy floppy car key, a house key, or a hotel key. But no key ring, no key chains, no lanyard. You can have like one of those travel packs of tissues, which is never enough. For whatever you use tissues for, it's not enough. Um, the first day you can have pens, you bring in your computer, this, that, and the other. Um, I'm not going to get into too much detail about that. Anyway, you take the test. You know, you sign all these releases that you're not going to talk about the questions or talk about whatever, um, which is why I'm not going to talk about those things. I'll talk about, you know, the stuff that's available online for the public. But because all the testing is copyrighted, you can't talk about it. Take the test. Go to lunch. I don't eat lunch, obviously, because I was going to throw up. Check my phone because you don't get to have your phone. You can't have a phone or a watch or anything. You can't have anything electronic. Not and I don't mean like a smart device. You can't have anything that uses electricity with you. You know, kind of crazy. Um, I guess if you have like an electric like uh, heart valve, you're kind of shit out of luck. So then you go back in there and you know take the other portion of the test, and then you leave. I was like, damn, that was intense. Um, I felt good. You know, like as good as you can feel. I guess it's not something that you walk out feeling like the the king of the world. You know what I mean? as good as you can feel. Uh, I definitely knew more law than I did before, which was good. Uh, and I felt like I was using it to the best of my ability. 
So yeah, that was nice. And I got a lot of support, a lot of texts and calls and all that good shit, uh, which I, I appreciate everyone's support. So then while I was there in the parking lot, you know, recuperating, I ordered uh, another order of DoorDash because this is not sponsored by DoorDash, by the way. It could be. But I was like, what can I eat that's that's cheap that's not going to dick me over like Chipotle and that is going to be like satiating my extreme hunger from not eating breakfast or lunch? Because it's like five o'clock at this point. And by the time I get back to the little cabin and with delivery, it's going to be like six, you know, before I eat. Uh, and I'm a big boy. I'm hungry. So I find this, uh, I don't even know what the restaurant was. It was some local joint on um, the other side of Roanoke. And they had this deal. It was $20, right? Keep that in mind, $20. You get like a large pizza with one topping and two uh, unique boneless wing orders for $20. That's a steal because you can you can barely get one order of boneless wings from B-dubs for $20. And I don't know if there's any place in Winchester besides... Uh, Domino's or Little Caesars where you can get a large pizza uh, for <laughs> for $20. So I was like, dude, $20 for a large pizza and two orders of wings? Uh, yeah. So I got the large pizza. Obviously, I got it with sausage as my one topping because um, the best pizza in the world is a deep dish with sausage, mushrooms, and onions. Best pizza in the world. Those, those are the best uh, flavors to put together. Uh, sometimes you can put peppers on there, but it depends. You know, that, really, if you're going to go with peppers, you might as well just get an all the way uh, from the melting pot in front royal, but whatever. So I get the sausage. And then as for the wings, I get like a sweet and spicy Korean barbecue and then a hot Tennessee barbecue, something or other. It was like hot and sweet Tennessee barbecue and sweet and spicy Korean barbecue were my two boneless wing flavors. And it got here pretty quick. Uh, which was pretty dope. So it pretty much met me here. Uh, pizza was banging, I got to say. twenty. It, one of the best $20 pizzas, even then it probably wasn't even the $20. It was probably like a $6 pizza if I total everything. I'm going to assume the wings were $7 in order just because that's like B-Dub's price. So that's $14, $20. So yeah, $6 pizza, banging $6 pizza. Uh, it had the crust... Um, I don't know why I'm getting into detail about this, but I know some people are going to be licking their lips. Uh, the crust had like the garlic butter brushed on it and the sausage was mm, chef's kiss. And the sauce, it was pretty sweet, but it wasn't sweet to the point where it tasted like a Food Lion pizza sauce in a jar. Like It was like actual pizza sauce, but it it was pretty well seasoned. Good flavor. And then as for the wings, the wings were banging, bro. And I got the blue cheese. Oh, of course, I only ate one order of wings because I'm not going to sit there and eat like, you know, 40 wings and a pizza. So I ate about half the pizza. Not going to lie. I was I was pretty freaking hungry. Order of wings. And then I have this little mini fridge that's like as small as the toilet. Um, and I threw the rest in there for today. And yeah, um, what did I do last night? Uh, talked to my mom on the phone. That was pretty cool, I guess. Uh, watch TV. Yeah, that's pretty much it. All right, so go to sleep, you know, whatever. Wake up, another day, another dollar. And go to the bar. Do the first whatever questions, you know, for the MBE, which was major doo-doo. Uh, this was the first time it ever took me the full three hours to do the 100 questions. Usually I can get done with, you know... I'm just going to say around 10 minutes to spare, usually. Uh, but these questions were kicking my ass. So it took me the full three hours. 
go sat in the car, listen to um some what Bobby Schmurda because he got released from jail. And then yeah, what else did I listen to? And that was pretty much it. Go back in, do the second half, whatever. It was really kicking my ass on that. Uh, <laughs> it was even worse than the first half. I was like, wow, dude. Okay, I hope that the curve is something nice. Uh, so, yeah, and then trying to think what happened. Oh, yeah, they told us the results would come out uh, around April 23rd. So no one asked when the results are coming out because I just told you April 23rd. And if anyone asks, I'm going to tell them to check the podcast. Uh, and that was pretty much it. Get in the car, call my mom and, and tell her about my day and, you know, head back to the house. And that's pretty much the February 2021, uh, bar exam in a nutshell with, with no information uh, about the exam. Cause I can't talk about the actual exam, like the contents of the exam. I can't talk about the questions. I can't, you know, do anything like that. Can't talk any law, but I can talk about my uh, personal experience before and after the exam. And that's pretty much it. You know, I felt, I felt all right about it as good as you can. It's like, um, I look at it this way and this is going to be kind of crude. So I apologize for that. But it's like, imagine you get a phone call and it's like, Hey, come to this location at nine o'clock. Someone's going to be there and they're going to touch your private parts. I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to be super crude. You're going to be like, hey, come to this location. We're going to touch your private parts. And you're like, cool. All right, sounds good. You know, whatever. You show up to the location, and it's a vasectomy. Either they didn't lie to you. You know what I mean? Like, you went in there expecting someone to touch your private parts. They didn't lie to you, but you walk out uh, with a bad taste in your mouth <laughs> because it didn't it didn't go uh, the way that you, uh, I guess, wanted it to, <laughs> so to speak. That's like my only um, comparison or analogy for this. Um, is a surprise vasectomy is how I would describe the bar exam, specifically the Virginia bar exam. Some other states might be different. Uh, I guess I'm going to cut and take a break and then come back and talk about some other shit. But yeah, thanks for listening to this uh, super long monologue about uh, a few days out of my week where I was taking a test like a kid. So yeah, thanks for listening. Peace. All right, guys. Um, welcome back to Late Nights with Lance. This is Lance Wines, obviously your host. Um, uh, we've actually changed venues since that last recording. So I did the February bar recap in Roanoke uh, the night after I finished the MBE or the second day of the bar. So that recording was actually, um, you know, current, up to date, a rehashing, a retelling of the bar exam uh, and that whole experience over that week. And then I had some other recordings from that night. Uh, and those recordings were sort of messages, uh, to myself more so about what would happen, you know, um, a celebratory message, uh, should I pass and a, uh, I guess, you know, uh, consolation message would probably be the best term. Uh, should I not pass? And those were just, you know, it was kind of like motivation for me, but also motivation for the audience. Uh, you know, it's kind of like in, in The Office when Michael Scott uh, was awaiting uh, Holly Flax after the New Year's ultimatum of whether she would uh, be become engaged or not to, I guess, AJ, I think was his name. And Michael and Aaron set up two boxes. One box was full of stuff that made Michael happy. 
uh, you know, to sort of cheer him up. And the other box was full of stuff to celebrate uh, in the case that she was not engaged. Uh, it was sort of like that. So two messages, uh, you know, one good, one bad. Uh, and it was intended to be, you know, for me to listen to later in April. Uh, and also for people who, you know, are celebrating something, some sort of achievement in their life. Or for, you know, people who something may not be going their way and they need a, uh, they need to hear some motivation. But, uh, you know, it's been a while. Uh, it's been a week, I suppose. And I've been getting requests to release some new material, uh, to release some new content. And so I figured I would do more updated content. I would sort of make this like a, a two-for-one or three-for-one special instead of just releasing content that... You know, I was really proud of the the bar recap, and I edited that, um, but I didn't know if I should release, you know, those messages that were more for me. Uh, I ended up deleting them because I'm not going to worry about it. Uh, you know, worrying is just suffering twice. You know, it's sort of like paying a bill that hasn't come yet, and so I'm not going to worry about it, and I'm going to, you know, uh, move on to other topics. I think there are two topics I'd like to discuss, uh, and I hope that, you know, we can get something out of those. Um, the first of which I'm going to talk about some emotional growth, uh, that I have, uh, gained, uh, from a recent, uh, I guess, fight that I've had between, uh, my best friend and myself and, and what I've learned from that. And then the second part is going to be about physical growth, um, or lack thereof, uh, regarding my weight loss journey that I've started. So those are just two topics I think that are more current, more up to date, and, and that people may be more interested to listen to. Something that you know I'm more interested, I think, to talk about. And again, I thought that you know my messages were good uh, and helpful, but I don't want to to dwell on something that hasn't happened yet that may happen, may not happen. I want to live in the now, and I want to focus on that. So, uh, regardless, we're just going to hop into this, uh, this argument and the things I've learned from that. So I guess, you know, going on two weeks ago, uh, my best friend and I, you know, I'm not going to, uh, get into too much, uh, detail, but my best friend and I got into an argument. Um, it started with, you know, simple jokes, uh, simple memes, you know, directed towards me and, and towards issues with my love life. And I, um, you know, I kind of went off, uh, in a traditional old school, uh, Lance fashion. I, I, I kind of went in for like the overkill and I made a comment or remark in return to these jokes, to this joke in particular, uh, that set them off. And then they left our group chat, which is sort of like a big, uh, de facto family, kind of like fast family group chat, uh, and ended up unfriending me on Facebook so they wouldn't see, you know, my post or I couldn't see their post. And it, it was, just, it turned kind of ugly for two, uh, grown individuals. And, you know, it was difficult for me at, at first, obviously, you know, I felt validated in, uh, my decision, I felt justified in, in my uh, attack because I, I deemed it more as, you know, a rebuttal. It's it's like, you know, self-defense. I wasn't the one who initiated the, the violence. I was the one who simply responded. Um, but of course, typically when I respond to things, I respond out of pocket and I go in, I use excessive force. 
uh, more so than is necessary or allowed. And it was difficult, you know, for that reason, just because of everything going on and the tension and the embarrassment, but also because I was going into the bar exam. And um, when I took the bar in July of 2020, I tried to sort of uh, do one of those, I forget what they call it, uh, like when people who are getting married call their exes and kind of like settle any scores so that they don't have any bad karma, any bad juju for their wedding. I don't know if people still do that or not, but you know, when I took the bar in July, I kind of tried to do that. I tried to settle any scores, uh, communicate with people that I hadn't necessarily communicated with in a while and and just tried to settle things in my life before I went into the bar. Obviously it didn't really matter because I didn't get the outcome that I wanted, but that's okay. Uh, it did lead to some positives that are for another time. Anyway, so with this, I didn't really have any any scores necessarily to settle off the top of my head. I couldn't really think of anything that would bring me some bad karma, some bad juju going into the February bar. And then this came on my plate, and it was like some of the worst juju I think I, I've had in a long time, uh, at least in two years, and if not more than that. And it was with someone that you know I really care about and someone who I, I know really cares about me. And I was like, well, shit, dude, I don't think I have enough time to settle this before I go into the bar. And I know that they weren't ready to talk about what happened. I still felt justified in my actions, so I don't think that I was necessarily ready to uh, have that discussion uh, responsibly, uh, you know, maturely, uh, and be able to actually communicate our feelings properly without there still uh, being hostility or anger. So I went into the bar um, without, I guess I considered I went into the bar without the blessing of my best friend, you know, which uh, it was kind of rough. You know, I I don't want to say luckily, luckily or unluckily, just a reality of the situation. There's a lot going on with when you take the bar exam, the traveling, the getting settled, the studying, the preparation, the actual exam itself. So for those, you know, three or four days, um, you know, it wasn't the, the number one thing on my mind for those four days, which is good because usually I dwell on things, but because this was such a big moment and because I have so much writing on this, it wasn't my top priority at the time. But of course, as soon as I left, I realized I had to come home to this conflict and you know, in this instance, I was upset that they didn't reach out just because I'm the type of person that, you know, I expect people to know what I want and what I need uh, just because they're things that I would do instinctively. But you can't expect yourself from other people. You can't ask for yourself or look for yourself in other people. And not everyone just does things instinctively like I do. It's just, it's my personality type. It's it's based off of the things that I've experienced and, and other people, you know, we don't have the, the same identity. We're all unique. Um, so I was upset that they didn't reach out because, you know, they knew that this day was coming and, and how not passing the first time had really negatively affected me and how much weight I was putting on uh, this attempt. But, you know, regardless, I understood um, why they didn't do it. So I'm at home and, and you know, I'm you know, talking to our friend group and, and communicating with the members of this group. Uh, and there's sort of like this, I don't want to call it an elephant in the room because it wasn't too terrible. 
uh, in terms of awkwardness. I've certainly experienced worse, but it, it was definitely lingering uh, on all of us, you know, and, and especially on me. Um, and so, you know, I was communicating with this group and um, this individual spouse had reached out to me uh, almost immediately when this conflict uh, began. And they made some really valid points. They pointed out, you know, some issues uh, with myself and the individual that I was conflicting with, uh, you know, points about uh, our individual flaws, but also issues within our friendship, within our relationship that needed to be addressed. Um, and their spouse, you know, is definitely very in tune with their emotions. Um, and, you know, they had uh, a good perspective on it because, I mean, they were, you know, directly in between it. Uh, and I had also uh, indirectly, unintentionally insulted uh, the spouse uh, as well, which, you know, completely wasn't my intention. Obviously, you guys know I, I take things too far. So, you know, I apologized and I took their advice. I took their observations into consideration. And I was thinking about what, to, you know, what to do. And after a few days of being home, I finally decided I was like, hey, I'm done with this. I'm going to take the advice of their spouse. I talked to their sibling. I was like, hey, I'm going to take the advice of these two people close to them that are also close to me and, and know, you know, my flaws, but also the things I need to communicate. And I'm just going to go for it. And so I, I sent I was trying to be concise because I know that a lot of people. Well, obviously, I'm long winded and I apologize for that. Uh, but I know that a lot of people don't like when I send extremely long messages, uh, which is kind of strange to me because I like to receive extremely long messages because I see it as an opportunity to fully express without any ambiguity what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, what I'm observing. You know what I mean? And uh, But the thing with that is on the receiving end, you know, a lot of people aren't as as anal, they're not as anal retentive, they're not as, um, let's just pull it, you know, put it bluntly, um, I have that, like, you know, autistic, uh, spectrum type thing, uh, I, just the way I am, I, I, I'm too into things, I, I overanalyze everything, and I think that other people also overanalyze everything and read too much into things, and, so I feel like it's my duty to prevent that from happening to them because I would like for people to prevent that from happening to me because I hate, you know, mixed communications, things like that. And, uh, you know, this this individual, the spouse had said, you know, hey, if you're going to, you know, talk about your feelings, talk about your thoughts about this conflict, be concise and just get it out there, put it out there short and sweet so it's not overwhelming you don't go too much into it and let it out. I said, okay, I'll try it. You know, my, I, there's no better time to try it than when you're trying to fix something important. And I did, and it went terribly. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's nothing uh, against the individual. It's nothing against the other parties. You know, it's nothing against the advice. It just wasn't. I think that in most instances in our relationship, it probably will be more beneficial moving forward to just be short and sweet and to the point to be concise and clear about my feelings and about my thoughts. But, you know, that's more for a proactive type experience. And in this instance, kind of being like a retroactive experience and an apology 
I think it doesn't work as well. And I also think that because of the magnitude of this conflict, the fact that I went short and sweet seemed kind of like, you know, I was lifting my nose to this person. You know what I mean? Or it it almost came off as, hey, I'm going to give you the bare minimum apology, not because, you know, I think that this is concise, but I'm giving you the bare minimum apology because I don't believe that I should apologize. And that's how it came off. And I was like, well, shit, you know, this really did not go as planned. And they let me have it. You know, they um, they had those feelings about <laughs> the feelings that I would have imagined that apology would have uh, brought up in someone. They had them and they told me about it. And they said, hey, you know, that was like the worst apology in the history of apologies, which, y- you know, uh, ouch. And, you know, it was sort of like, hey, Uh, If you're going to give me a shitty apology, I'm not going to accept it, but I just want to move on. Uh, You know, if you actually feel the way that I think that you do in regards to me, uh, you know, if you actually feel that you're justified and vindicated, um, you know, that's an issue. But, you know, I'm just going to have to deal with it. And if you want to, you know, still paint me as a bad guy, that's fine. But I'm over it. I'm not going to accept your shitty apology but we can move on. And I was like, oof, that is not good. That's not a good way to, that's not a good place to establish a relationship or to mend a relationship is, and I don't know necessarily if they feel the same way, but for me, I have a hard time getting over things. And I think that this individual does too. Um, But when things aren't completely smoothed over or at least mended to the best of our ability, I dwell on those things, you know, it, it, it's like, I don't know, when you see like a, a one tile out of line on a floor, or you see, you know, a certain piece of carpet that is, you know, not in the right direction against the grain or whatever, it's those little nuances that I see that just bug me, you know, and it's, it's like, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder, but for communications and for interpersonal relationships, which is probably just being anal retentive. But again, you know, being over analytical and, and knowing that, you know, uh, I feel like everyone's going to be kind of jaded. They're going to have, this is going to be looming over the relationship because it wasn't completely resolved. Um, and I've had that issue with my, you know, intimate relationships, which I'll get into. And I was like, well, shit, I got to fix this. And so I, I went, I just went for it. You know, I, I put more out there. Uh, I gave more detail, more elaboration, just like I probably should have done from the beginning uh, so that I wouldn't come off uh, like a dick. And, you know, then we we started a conversation. It was better communication. And I think we got the point across, you know, like, hey, uh, you know, I was wrong. I was in the I, we were both in the wrong, but it, it was not my place to say what I said, to do what I did and to act with such malice because the action didn't really necessitate or allow for the amount of malice that I responded with. Um, you know, and obviously I didn't, I didn't mean to hurt their spouse's feelings, and I, I was wrong in the wrong to attempt to hurt their feelings uh, specifically. And I think we worked things out, but I had to make it clear that, you know, I in regards to the communications that led to the conflict, you know, I have needs that weren't necessarily being met or, or being met in the way that 
I guess I felt was, was the right way. You know, there's, there's plenty of ways to do things, but I, I get into this mindset where, you know, there's one particular Lance way. And if you can't guess or <laughs> discover the Lance way, you're going to fail every time, even if you do it in a way that would be acceptable to anyone else. Uh, and that's a problem. And, you know, we communicated that and I think things are better. Uh, obviously, you know, I'm still upset. I'm sure that, he, that they are still upset in a way. It's not the same level of uh, upset or, you know, the same kind of upset. But, you know, it just takes time to, to mend things. You know, time heals all wounds. Um, and that's true. But sometimes you got to put on, you know, Neosporin and a bandage. You know what I mean? Like time does heal all wounds, but sometimes you got to reset a broken bone or put, you know, put stitches in. Sometimes there has to be a catalyst to the healing. And I think that that conversation, that apology was more of a catalyst to the healing and the healing, the actual healing will come in time sort of when we, you know, get back together and, and uh, enjoy each other's company, you know, and, and whatnot. And it's just, it's been difficult for the both of us uh, with our individual struggles. And anyway... So you're probably wondering, why the hell am I telling you this story? Uh, Because if I just ended it here, it would look like I was being a dick and talking about intimate private details that this person may not want to be out there uh, or that their spouse may not want to be out there or what have you. But I think it's important to talk about um, because I've learned a lot about myself, (laughs) way too much. Um, So what have I learned? I think that the first thing... Uh, there are, there are two main things I've learned. One is that I, I, I still have a problem with bottling things up and that has been my issue for so long. And I think it starts with the fact that I hate asking for things. I hate asking for things from people. I hate asking, uh, for basic things in return because I feel like, you know, if I'm too needy or if they think that I'm asking too much, they'll just drop me or that I don't deserve the basic, um, you know, treatment that I give to people naturally and that, you know, people give to their friends and their best friends naturally. I feel like I'm asking too much as if, because I'm unlovable, you know, or as if, uh, they're putting an extra effort to like me because they have to. Um, and so I don't ask for things. And, and, you know, in addition to that, when things go wrong or when things hurt me, I don't say it to the people that I care about the most because I'm worried that they're going to take it the wrong way and think that I'm asking too much of them to address their behavior or change their behavior. And then they'll say that I'm not worth the effort and leave. And that's, you know, one of my biggest fears. And so everyone knows that I'm very vocal about things I care about and especially on the internet and especially in regards to politics and law, when something offends me or hurts me, I'm very vocal at, you know, standing up for myself, standing up for other people, standing up for a position, defending a position, advocating for a position. And I can do it in a way that is mature and appropriate. And, you know, I I pride myself on that because I've worked so hard to get there. But that's typically with strangers or, or people who I don't have an intimate relationship with. But when it comes to the people that I'm closest to, I'm so afraid that they're going to abandon me that I let them hurt me repeatedly 
because I'm worried that me saying something will cause a different type of conflict that I'm to blame for. As if they'd say, why'd you bring that up? The reason that, speaking as them, the reason that I'm upset is because you brought this up and accused me of hurting you or accused me of doing something wrong. And it's not that I'm doing something wrong. It's that you're just, you know, too soft or taking it the wrong way. And I can't be with someone or I can't love someone who's like that. So I'm going to leave. And I guess that's kind of like what gaslighting is. I don't really know what that term truly means, but that's how I feel. I feel that they're going to do that. And so when people hurt me or, you know, things weigh on me, I don't say anything. And then eventually it gets to a point where, you know, I bottle it up and my fuse just gets shorter and shorter until finally I, I explode and I let it all out at once. And typically, I mean, that's the thing. I, I have a great memory and that's probably from trauma and probably from this defense mechanism, but I have a great memory. And so, you know, you'll hurt me and it'll be something so minor, so minuscule, just like what happened with this conflict. And then I'll go off and I'll bring up stuff that happened you know, five years ago. And people will be like, where the hell did that come from? Why are you bringing that up? Are you upset about that? You weren't upset about it in the moment. Why are you using that as ammunition when you didn't bring it up when it happened? You know, things like that. And I'm just rattling off stuff. I'm rattling, rattling off everything that's happened to me between us in the last five years as if I'm reading from a list. And it's not like I actively remember these things. That's that's the one of the issues. That's part of why I think it's a traumatic response or a, a traumatic defense mechanism. I don't actively dwell on these things. You know, I'll forget something that happened a few years ago. But as soon as the, the trauma hits, as soon as the conflict hits, it's like I unlock the file and I just have a list of times that I felt that I was wrong and I just rattle them off. And then it upsets the person that I'm doing this to, obviously. Uh, but for one of the reasons is because no one likes to have a list of like 50 reasons why they're shit. You know what I mean? No one likes to sit there and accept uh, the top 50 reasons why you're worthless and a piece of shit and have been hurting this person that you care about without your own knowledge of actually hurting them. Uh, and they break down. And it... it you know, and part of it is it's okay that it's not okay that you hurt people, I guess, but it, it's inevitable. And, you know, hurting each other in intimate relationships is natural. And it's about dealing with that when it happens and, you know, mitigating that harm. But for me, they don't think that they've hurt me. And so they think that I've been okay. And then I say, hey, you know, you didn't think that you hurt me, but I've been in pain for five years because of something that happened, you know, way back then. And they're thinking, oh my God. You know, they think, oh, my God, not only did I hurt this person, but they've been the person I love has been in pain for five years because of this one thing. And also they think, well, how could I not notice? How could I not have done anything? They think that, you know, they are shitty partners or shitty friends because, you know, they feel like, well, you know, why didn't I notice that this person was in pain from something that I did? You know, but that's it's more on you for not bringing it up and. And that's just one thing. But if you list off 50 of those at one time, it's not just, hey, they've, I hurt them once and they've been in pain for five years. It's I've hurt them 50 times and they've been in increasing, you know, exponential pain for five years. And I was blind to it and it makes them feel like shit and it's manipulative and it's harmful and it's, you know, it's, it's emotionally abusive and it's not an active response 
like I said, it, it's a traumatic defense mechanism that I've gathered from my fear of abandonment um, that stems from my childhood. And it, it, it cost me, you know, at least two of my relationships, two of my long-term relationships. Um, anyway, uh, I think it's a good time to take a break, and then we'll be back to discuss, you know, what else I learned. But uh, thanks for tuning in. All right, uh, and we're back. Uh, I know that's kind of heavy, and it's only going to get heavier before it gets lighter, just like me. Um, and so moving forward from that, that was like the one of the initial issues. The second initial issue, you know, jumping right back in, is more of an active thing. I think that my bottling things up and then exploding, which I've done for years, and I have stories about that, but, you know, it has cost me a lot, is a passive you know, defense mechanism that stems from early childhood trauma and my fear of abandonment that comes from said trauma. Um, but the other aspect I think that it is really important to mention is more of an active thing. And this is something that I actually am really ashamed of, uh, more so than the other thing. And it is my feeling, my thoughts or feelings where I doubt that other people can experience empathy. And I know that that sounds extremely shitty, um, and it, it comes from, I, th- I think, my egocentricity, um, how I value myself, especially internally, and I just doubt that people can feel empathy to the level or to the extent that I can, and that embodies itself in me forcing empathy upon them. And so I'll start off by saying that I always have this phrase that I use when I publicly shame people on the internet for being bigots or for having, you know, outdated, antiquated, um, conservative beliefs. So whenever I see someone being racist or sexist or homophobic or, you know, spouting hate speech or talking uh, about their, you know, antiquated political beliefs, I, you know, I typically publicly shame them um, just because I think that it is important Uh, But the reason that I think it's important, and this is the line I used to justify it, and I've used this line since, you know, 2012, 2013, is, you know, I would trust in God, but God doesn't work quick enough for me. And that's that's how I feel in those instances. I say, yeah, I do believe that these people will get theirs. I, you know, what goes around comes around, um, you know, karma is real, karma is a bitch, and I think that, you know, at the end... Uh, you know, God will judge them. It's true. Only God will judge them or whatever you believe. There's always that sort of, uh, you know, vengeance and retribution. And, you know, um, that's just how it goes. But for me, I don't want them to wait until their eternal fate to receive the judgment that they are destined or due to have because I want them to learn to be a better person today. I don't want them to get to the, you know, pearly gates. I don't want them to get to heaven or get to St. Peter. And I don't want him to say, hey, you enjoyed your life and you had a great life and you, you know, loved existing, but you were a shitty person for eight decades. And then be like, what? How could I be a shitty person for eight decades? Nobody ever told me that I was a shitty person for eight decades. I never faced the consequences of being a shitty person for eight decades. I've never, 
you know, dealt with the consequences of, of harming other people or ruining people's lives, how could you now say that I'm a shitty person and that he sends them to hell and they don't understand why, if that's how, you know, eternal damnation works? I think that that's lame because, and obviously I would justify this as me allowing to, you know, giving them salvation or the chance at salvation. But in reality, you know, I want them to understand that they're wrong, understand that they're hurting people and have the opportunity to say, Hey, this sucks. What I'm doing must be wrong. I'm going to change my behavior for the rest of my life. You know what I mean? That's like how I look at it. I look at it as, um, in a sick and twisted way. I am offering them salvation. I am allowing them to repent, uh, and, and gain forgiveness for their sins. But that is an extremely egocentric, um, sociopathic, almost, um, way of looking at it. I, I mean, I would make a great cult leader, I guess, because of that. And that's, but that's sort of my mindset on a grandiose scale of why I publicly shame people is because I say, hey, you know, they may get punished and they may get their karma or they may, you know, get their eternal damnation. Um, but they're not going to know that they were wrong or know that they hurt people until they die, until they meet St. Peter. Uh, and that means that they could go on for another 30, 40, 50 years hurting people without facing any consequences. And that doesn't sit right with me because I feel like a lot of good people, a lot of just people, a lot of true people who are, you know, beneficial to this world face consequences that they don't deserve. You know, I feel like the innocent often face the consequences of guilt and the guilty often face the freedom of innocence. And that's not fair. And, uh, of course, who who am I to judge fairness? Obviously, I'm, I'm not, you know, Thanos or Ultron or what have you. Um, but I sort of take upon myself that mantle. And so this issue translates very well into how I deal with my intimate relationships. So, as I said, you know, I bottle things up. It's sort of like part one. I bottle things up. And then I explode. Well, what happens when I explode? What happens when you drop the Mentos in the Diet Coke? And the explosion, the reaction that comes from it, the chain reaction um, is ugly. And the chain reaction, it translates to me trying to force them to feel what I feel so that hopefully they learn a lesson, gain empathy, and feel sorry for what they did to me. And they won't do it ever again because I forced my feelings onto them. And again, that's extremely manipulative and abusive, and I thought that I had gotten past it, uh, but it seems like it turns out that I really hadn't gotten past it. I just really hadn't had the opportunity to do it in so long that I thought that I didn't do it anymore, but it's because the opportunity did not present itself, and that's an issue, obviously. So what happens is, you know, I let all these things out, and I, you know, I, I explode, I go off, And I tell them all the ways that they've hurt me that they didn't know because I didn't properly communicate. I didn't communicate effectively or maturely. Um, And then to top it off, the cherry on top is I say something extremely hurtful directed at them to make up for the five, let's just use the, continue with that analogy, the five years or the 50, 50 lashes, I try to make them feel that all at once if that makes sense. So if I, you know, say, Hey, you've hurt me 
in 50 different ways over the last five years. In my mind, I'm like, well, how are they going to understand that they were wrong? And honestly, the the bottling things up and exploding probably wouldn't be as terrible. It wouldn't be as bad if I put a cap on the bottle. If I let everything out, had a breakdown, we talked things out, we properly communicated, we tried to mitigate the issue, we discussed how we would change our behaviors, and we moved on with apologies, the bottling up and the explosion wouldn't be too bad if I could put the, um, you know, the, the cap on top of the bottle, the cork in the bottle, and move on. I think that that would be okay. It wouldn't be healthy, but it would be a good starting point. Well, I don't do that. It's like, you know, I, I drop the Mentos in the Coke and it explodes and I blow up and I let all these things out and then I shake up the bottle some more. It's like I drop the Mentos in, it explodes, and I'm like, oh, that wasn't a big enough explosion to put this person on notice. Let me shake it up until it bursts. And so if I say, hey, you've hurt me 50 times over the last five years, I'm like, well, me just telling them isn't enough. You know, telling someone something isn't enough, I have to show them. And so the 50 lashes that they've given me over five years, I give them those 50 lashes all at once. And, you know, as I've said, I've showed you how much, you know, 50 lashes can hurt over an extended period of time. Imagine receiving those 50 lashes all at once. It's unbearable. And I do that to people. And that's what I, it's, I add that to the explosion. You know, not only did I pop off and and list all these things that made you feel shitty, I also didn't think that you could empathize with me or feel, you know, uh, uh, sympathy or pity or at least understand where I was coming from because I doubt your emotional intelligence. And so I'm like, well, the only way that they're going to get it is if they feel what I feel and I drag them down to my level by giving them all of the lashes, all of the pain, all at once, so that we're even, to even the score, because I think if we're on the same level, then we can communicate equally. And that, my friends, is is the reason that I'm single, honestly. It has nothing to do with my physical appearance, uh, even though I do believe that I'm unattractive, I do believe that my weight is an issue, as I'll discuss The reason I'm single is because I still haven't managed to get over that and deal with that. And I'm actively trying, doing my best. You know, I've had to face these issues alone for so long that I I felt like I developed a a number of skills to get over it, but I really haven't. And the reason that I'm single, not as in I can't find potential partners, The reason that I'm single as in I can't move on or the reason I'm not in the relationship that I was in before, the the reason I'm not with, you know, my my past significant other is is that. That's the reason that that relationship ended there, you know. Ergo, that's the reason that I'm single and that's something that I'm not over yet and I don't want to, um, you know, I don't want to show that side to anyone else until I become better. I don't want to... um, you know, expose, uh, expose someone else that I may love intimately to that side until that side is gone. And it's, it's just a memory. Um, and that's what I did with this individual. And that's what I've done with, you know, a number of my significant others, if not all of them, that's, that's my issue is that, 
you know, I, I doubt their emotional intelligence. I doubt that they can understand or comprehend or visualize how I feel because I, I feel myself as if I am on some emotional maturity, um, platform, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm up there with the gods in in terms of morality and maturity. And, you know, I have to hurt them so they understand how they hurt me. And, you know, as I pointed out, it's obviously a terrible thing. Um, and so that's something that, you know, I, I've really learned, um, well, I've learned over the years, uh, especially with, um, you know, my last relationship. And of course now with this, um, argument between my best friend, uh, and I, but I think that, you know, it's, it's really, it's really hitting me hard now that I've had time to dwell on it. Now that the bar's over, I have nothing to do but work out and think about all my mistakes. Um, and, and moving on, I, I think the next part, so that's more of like the beginning of it, uh, you know, what I've learned, but I think that one of the latent, uh, uh, issues or latent things that I, I worry about is, uh, my need for external validation. You know, if, if I could break this into three things I've learned, the first is that I blow up. The second is that I, I give all the lashes at once as sort of like a punishment, um, and, you know, those are because I don't communicate well. I don't communicate and I don't trust. Those are my two issues. I've, I've, I've explained them in depth, but my issues are I don't communicate well uh, when I'm hurt because of my fear of abandonment. And I don't trust people because, you know, from what I've experienced, that's just how it works. Uh, and I've had to unlearn that type of love, you know, from what I've seen growing up and, and what I've experienced. I've had to unlearn that. But the third thing is I have this incessant, insatiable need for external validation, and it sucks. And I can't pinpoint where it came from. Obviously, you know, Freud would say that it came from my parents, and, you know, that's just how it goes, I guess. Um, maybe, I, you know, maybe I was conditioned into this, you know, like Pavlov. Um, but I have this... I think it's because I just hate myself so much because I just have so much it just internal struggle and I just, you know, I, I look down on myself so much um, and I don't value myself that I, I seek the validation to survive from outside sources and, you know, that's obviously part of it, but the, the other part is that that is draining of their uh, energy that they need for their own internal validation, if that makes sense. It's like a vicious battery or like a, a closed circuit, right? And I lack internal validation, therefore I need external validation. I find someone who is, you know, empathetic, loving, caring, perfect partner, and they provide the external validation that I need to translate that energy into internal validation. Well, because they've used all of their energy to create external validation for me, they don't have the energy to give internal validation to themselves. And so they rely on me to return that validation. And so then because they've given me external validation that I can translate 
into internal validation. I now have the internal validation to create confidence uh, and emotional strength that I can turn into external validation to give to them for their internal validation. And then it, it just becomes a vicious cycle of, you know, nobody is growing in that cycle. And that's an important part of a relationship. I, I've learned that uh, from being single for the last two years. That's such an important part of the relationship is actually growing. And I always thought that, especially in my last relationship, that we were growing because we we were developing, you know, professionally and publicly so well. You know, all the things that we had accomplished, like tangibly, all the things that we had tangibly accomplished were amazing. And I thought that we were growing, but that's not the type of growing that you need. You need the intangible growing. You know what I mean? The things that you cannot um, quantify. That's what you need to grow on. And no one's growing when you're just recycling the same energy. It's like matter. You know, matter cannot be created nor destroyed. It can only change its shape or change its form. That's what is happening with validation in my relationships is I'm lacking. They provide. They're lacking. I provide. But it's all coming from the same validation energy. And to the point where if one of us is off of our game or if one of us is away, um, physically unavailable, emotionally unavailable, mentally unavailable, spiritually unavailable, it creates a conflict in our relationship because there's now a validation vacuum. And that's where conflicts come from in my relationships. Now that I look back is the fact that, you know, because of something going on either in my life or their life, they didn't have the energy to provide the validation that I need. So then I suffer. And then because I'm suffering and don't have the energy, you know, to provide the validation that they need, then they're lacking and they suffer because I'm suffering. And it's just, again, another vicious cycle. You know, it's like, it's like, you know, pissing upstream and then you go for a drink downstream and it's the piss you know, and that's what it's been like. And those are my relationship issues. And I had this dependency on external validation because of how I view myself. And that drains the energy and the spark from my partners to the point where I'm like a leech, you know? I I mean, it's, it's, it's not like a mutually beneficial relationship. I, I'm, (laughs) I like venom and they're like a host and I'm like draining their energy to become a monster. And that is a terrible realization to have. But luckily, I'm only 25. So I have hopefully another 50 years to become the perfect version of me or at least the best version of me possible. Um, and that's the thing that happened in my in my last relationship. And, you know, I'm going to use her name and I'm going to talk about what happened. Um, I'm talking about Ivy. And, you know, the reason that I broke up with her, which, you know, I regret, I regretted then I'm dealing with that regret and remorse now, almost two years later. Uh, it was, uh, quite honestly, the worst decision of my life. Um, and I can be, you know, extremely blunt about that because I've made lots of good decisions in my life. It's not that I have an array of bad decisions and that just happens to be the worst. I've made lots of great decisions and that one sticks out because it was, you know, a uniquely poor decision. But anyway... One of the reasons that I justified breaking up with her and ending our relationship 
um, which obviously she benefited from that because she then went and found the validation. I'm I'm not going to jump ahead. One of the reasons I used to to justify breaking up with her was that you know she didn't have the same spark that I saw in her back in 2016. It, it just wasn't the same um, balance in our relationship. It wasn't the same uh, back and forth in our relationship. You know, she, I always told her, and she's always she'll always be the one that did this. She set my soul on fire. When I met her, She, I met her at a time when I needed to meet her, whether that be fate or divine intervention or chance. I met her when I needed her, and she provided me a spark in my chest. She set my soul on fire. Well, fast forward almost four years and it wasn't there anymore. And I couldn't figure out why, but things just weren't going well. So I decided to end the relationship. Well, jokes on me. I'm the reason for that. I'm the reason that she didn't set my soul on fire anymore because she didn't have the energy to create that spark, to continue, uh, to support that flame. It wasn't an eternal flame. It needed kindling it needed fuel it needed oil or gas it needed wood to keep burning it needed support and I wasn't fueling her fire and because I wasn't fueling her fire she couldn't use that fire to light me and set my soul on fire continuously right so that's the issue here and you know because of that and I didn't see that until it was too late it took me uh, like two or three months after the breakup to realize that was it. That was what has happened. I've been dwelling on that for a while. Uh, it's good to get that out there publicly. Um, it's my fault, you know? And so, uh, for that reason, you know, I, we ended the relationship and I, I mean, if you just look at our social medias, if you just talk to us, if you just, you know, if you take a look at our public persona since then, since August of 2019, I mean, you know who was at fault. I mean, straight up. I mean, honestly, I mean, she went on, obviously, she had it rough at first, and that's like the stereotypical, you know, um, the feminine partner always takes it the hardest initially, but it's the masculine partner that suffers the longest. And that's a stereotype that's that's true in this instance, you know, and she, you know, suffered and, and you know, I didn't, treat her as well as I should after the relationship because I was trying to distance myself and justify my decision. Uh, and then she obviously, uh, I don't know if she, like I said, you never get over things. So she didn't necessarily get over it. She learned to live with it. It's like a scar you learn to live with. Um, and she went on to do great things. You know, I mean, she started traveling and meeting new people and dating new people and experiencing all these amazing things that she had always dreamed of, but never had gotten to do or never had gotten to experience. But because of where she was, the value changed. And I think that her family saw that she was lacking that energy that I had drained from her. And so they allowed her to experience her dreams uh, to fulfill and satisfy her dreams. And she came out of those experiences as, you know, a self-actualized person, a completely different, new, you know, strong, uh, intellectual, beautiful, self-actualized individual because she, you know, her perspective on life changed because I wasn't there to drain that energy seeking the external validation that I needed. And it took her finding her own form of internal validation, whatever that was. Uh, I, I wasn't present, obviously. Sadly, I wasn't present, so I don't know. 
But because, you know, I was draining her energy, which means that I couldn't provide her with the external validation that she needed to build internal validation, she had to find whatever gave her that energy again to build that internal validation. And that's how she could go and experience life to the fullest. And she did. So whatever, you know, allowed her to find that and to give her that energy again and have her heart set sparked and set on fire, you know, she found the spark and then she found the fire and, you know, she's out setting everyone's soul on fire that she meets, you know, she found that on the other end of the spectrum, on the other end of the continuum is me. I didn't. Uh, I thought that I did. I tried and I didn't. And I kept looking for it in other people because I kept looking for it as external validation instead of internal validation. And that was extremely detrimental to my psyche and my mental health to the point of, you know, a number of, you know, uh, dark, depressive, suicidal encounters, Um, you know, different experiences that I I don't, uh, I'm not proud of. And, you know, I kept looking for, you know, not necessarily another Ivy, Um, but I kept looking for another person to provide me that external validation. In reality, that translates to, I was looking for another person to drain, um, their life force of, and that's, you know, terrible to realize. And, um, you know, I, I tried to do that for a while. There were a number of people, there was a young lady at the, you know, Delaware law school that I was, uh, extremely infatuated with. Uh, and I thought that she could be that person. She wasn't. I'm, in reality, I'm glad that she wasn't because I, I don't want to hurt her or anyone else in the same way that I hurt Ivy. So I'm glad that she rejected me because I didn't get the opportunity to be a leech. And, you know, moving forward, it's going on two years and I've come to these realizations and I realize that I should be single um, because I need to work on these things. Uh, So, yeah, you know, and and that really the reason that I can sit here and talk about that now is because of this fight that I had with my best friend. You know, the reason I can sit here and talk about it is because my best friend didn't break up with me. My best friend didn't uh, leave me or abandon me. Yeah, we didn't talk uh, for a while. Yeah, we didn't talk for like two weeks, a week and a half. And it was shitty and, you know, the whole unfriending and the whole um, elephant in the room, but my best friend didn't, you know, uh, abandon me or break up with me to the point where all communication was over forever, which, you know, like a breakup. So I had the opportunity to recognize my mistake, learn from my mistake, address my mistake, and hopefully change my behavior to prevent another, uh, mistake to prevent a relapse. Whereas when you break up, usually by the time you get to step two, three, and four, it's too late and the other person has moved on and they're out making someone else's life better and not yours. And anyway, uh, and so luckily my best friend allowed me the opportunity to learn and then come back to the situation because it wasn't permanently ended uh, with what I had learned. It's like breaking off into a group, uh, you know, discussing and then coming back. And that's what happened. And so those are the things I've really learned from this this conflict. And it's mm-hmm. it's that, you know, I have this issue with uh, not communicating when I'm hurt because of my fear of abandonment. I have this issue with going in for overkill, for seeking to harm others so that they can experience what I experience, the pain that I experience, because I don't trust that they 
believe me or trust that they feel it. And then I have this, you know, need for external validation that I've used as my life force, like it's blood for years that I'm trying to get over. And and being single for this long has really, uh, I think, helped with that, but it's still a bitch. Um, And for all those reasons, you know, obviously I don't think any of my exes are going to listen to this. Uh, (laughs) uh, Certainly not the ones that I'm talking about. Uh, I don't think they're going to listen to this, but if they do or if anyone does, you know, I want them to know that I'm sorry and that, you know, I feel like shit and I, I regret everything because I was such a terrible person under the guise that I was some sort of superior moral being and, you know, I was wrong. And it, those are things that you don't just notice. It it sucks, but it, it almost has to happen for you to notice and learn uh, and maybe that's why it kept happening so many times ruining all of these relationships that I thought were amazing uh, because it was God or fate or the universe or chance or karma, you know, trying to teach me a lesson that I kept thinking that I was getting, but in reality I was not getting. Um, and so, I, you know, I'd like to apologize to them. Um, maybe that is why I can't get over them is because I, I can't get over the fact that I don't have the chance to make things right. That's, I think, the big thing. I can't get over her or any of them. I can't get over anything in my life, not just people or relationships. I can't get over anything because I hate the idea that, that things are done, that things are final, and that I can't go back and you know revise and edit and make things right. Um, but in regards to my best friend, you know, uh, again, I apologize, and I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to learn these lessons or at least relearn these lessons, uh, ingrain them in my mind, and I just want you to know that I love you, and I know that you probably aren't listening because you hate me dragging you on, but your spouse is probably listening, and uh, to them, I love you as well, and I just hope you know that I, I really appreciate you guys, uh, admire you guys, and adore you guys. And so, yeah, that's where I'm going to end this section, and then I'm going to pick up with a quick uh, weight loss discussion after uh, a short break. So, yeah, this is Late Nights with Lance. Um, thanks for listening. You know, I love you all, and I'll be back. All right, guys, and we're back. Again, I appreciate everyone listening. I appreciate everyone sticking around. Uh, I know that this is a, uh, another long podcast, so I apologize. I'm sure that it'll be better in parts. Um, I'll put that in the, the uh, description. But, yeah, so picking up on my emotional failings, and it's funny, the original tagline for this podcast for Late Nights with Lance was, you know, a late-night discussion of all of Lance's emotional follies. That's what it was. That was the when Spotify asked me to give a description uh, and Anchor uh, asked me to give a description. I was like, well, it's going to be, you know, late night discussions about my life. And I had to phrase it in a way that was accurate. And it's true. It's my emotional follies, my emotional failures and issues. So I appreciate everyone listening to those. Um, Again, I hope that this is beneficial in some way. Uh, I don't know how me kind of trash talking myself is going to be beneficial, but it feels good to talk about my mental health, my failures, and uh, how I'm taking steps to change that. And that's where we are today. So why am I on this weight loss journey? Um, It comes back to that same conflict and to those same issues. So this year, uh, February 14th is Valentine's Day, obviously. Uh, It is every year. It always has been. Uh, And... 
this year I spent Valentine's Day alone in the truest sense of the phrase. So last year I was single for Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2020. What a time before the world fell apart. Of course, it was already falling apart. But anyway, last year I spent Valentine's Day alone and I had like a platonic Valentine, which was uh, Elaine Prelly, Esquire, I should say. You know, my platonic Valentine, Elaine, and then, you know, kind of Alex Pooner as well, but she was dating Erich um, and, you know, Mazel Tov. But anyway, um, this year I was single for Valentine's Day and I... We're stuck in quarantine in a global pandemic. I'm not at school. Um, I have no lineup of women on reserve uh, like I used to back in the day, sadly. Um, Sadly that I used to do that, not sadly that I don't have them anymore because that's terrible. That's terrible and immature. Um, But yeah, I have no one in my life. No one. And, you know, uh, on Valentine's Day, I, I wished a number of my friends platonic happy valentines and not all of them responded uh a majority of them did not respond and i assume that part of it is because you know friends wishing friends happy valentine's day might be weird another part of it is they're all in serious uh committed relationships most of the marriages and they don't have time to wish me uh, a single friend a happy valentine's day because they're busy enjoying true love and so i spend valentine's day alone yeah, I got my mom a gift, which was nice, you know, uh, she loves me unconditionally, but it hurt because I felt like I was at the, at that point, at that time, I was in between trying and not trying. Like I was really trying to find a significant other. And then sometimes I'd be like, nah, I'm not ready. It's not right. And then I wasn't trying at all. But on February 14th, as much as I may have been trying or may not have been trying, I can't tell if it was an on weekend or an off weekend. No one wants to be single and alone on Valentine's Day. Whether you think that you're ready to be in a relationship or not, it's more about the external validation of seeing everyone else look like they're, you know, fucking happy as can be. It's FOMO. It's fear of missing out. It's 100%. The reason that you hate being single on Valentine's Day and hate being alone on Valentine's Day is a fear of missing out. And it hit me hard. I mainlined the fear of missing out. And it hurt even more when my platonic friends and, you know, my friend groups didn't wish me a happy Valentine's Day as, like, pity. Yeah, I wanted pity. Uh, Or they didn't reciprocate my wishing them a happy Valentine's Day uh, when I said it first. Uh, Again... I just think it's common courtesy to reciprocate messages like that. But again, I wanted pity for being the only single alone loser. And then, of course, I got into that fight the next day with my best friend and that tour of friend group, you know, kind of like a shit. It was like Captain America Civil War, essentially. Uh, Obviously, I was um, actually in this instance, I think I was more uh, Captain America because I was against order. Um, Anyway, I can't turn every discussion into a Marvel discussion. But where am I going with this? Uh, So February 15th, terrible day. My friendship, you know, kind of cracked and I was alone. I felt even more alone because I felt like I had lost my best friend, my very best friend. And I just, my self-hatred was at an all-time high. I mean, okay, let's not say all-time high. I've been, (laughs) it's been pretty high before. It was, it was in record levels. It was like, 
top five moments in which I hate myself the most in my life. And, of course, I thought to myself, I'm single. No one wants me. No one wants to flirt with me. No one wants to talk to me. No one wants to Snapchat me. No one wants to FaceTime me. No one wants to um, go on a date with me or go on a Zoom date with me. No one wants to go for a drive in the Jeep late at night listening to Dave Matthews Band with me. No one wants to have sexual intercourse with me. No one wants to let me satisfy them sexually uh, without reciprocation, you know, uh, even. Um, And it must be because I'm physically hideous. That was it. I mean, that was my initial thought. And I think it has something to do with it, obviously. I do think it is uh, a part of it. I don't think it's the, the largest portion, though, obviously. But... I was like, damn, dude, like, I can't, you know, no one's texting me, no one's, you know, whatever. Like, I'm offering, like, free oral services in exchange for some sort of validation um, (laughs) at this point. I might as well put an ad out on, like, Craigslist or something. You know, I was like, damn, I can't even get someone to use me at this point. I, I was, like, rooting for someone to take advantage of me or take me for granted or use me if it meant that I got some sense that I was wanted, even if it was a false sense of hope. And I didn't get that, and I, I accredited that to my physical appearance. And it, it's not necessarily that I think that I'm ugly. It's that I think that society thinks that fat is ugly. And I felt that way my entire life. And, you know, I think that if I look at myself in a mirror from the neck up, you know, I'd fuck myself. I'm a pretty hot guy, I think, from the neck up. Uh, but from the neck down, you know, the only reason that, you know, Chris Farley and John Belushi had so much sex was because they were funny and had money. And my, my friends don't always think that I'm funny, and my friends definitely know that I don't have money. So, you know, overcoming my physical appearance and my weight it's not like I'm a celebrity and people will overlook my physical appearance and go out with me or have sex with me, um, you know, ignoring my weight because I have these other things that are attractive. Right now, I don't have anything that's attractive uh, to outweigh my weight, which is, is a shitty feeling. Whether it's true or not, it doesn't really matter. It's true to me. It's my truth. Um, you know, it's not like I'm rich. It's not like I, it's not like I'm DJ Khaled, you know, DJ Khaled arguably is obviously morbidly obese. And I also think that he's kind of unattractive physically, you know, at least in the face. And he's, you know, kind of historically an asshole. And he says that he expects his wife to give him oral sex, but he never in his life will return oral sex. He refuses to reciprocate oral sex. And yet he is, is, you know, um, metaphorically speaking, swimming in it, you know, to the point where he has a jet ski to go through it. Um, but that's not me, you know, and I'd like to think that I have things that DJ Khaled doesn't have, uh, like a JD. Um, but, you know, DJ Khaled has money and, and fame and vanity, and vanity makes up for... Uh, vanity supersedes gluttony. And right now I have no vanity, I only have gluttony. Um, and that really hurt. And I felt like, well, the only reason that I I don't have this female attention that I so desperately desire is because I'm unattractive. And the only reason that they find me unattractive 
is because society has conditioned us to think that, you know, people who are overweight or obese or, or, you know, strictly speaking fat aren't attractive. And obviously there are movements of body positivity, like with Lizzo. Um, there's not really any of those movements with men, unfortunately. Uh, I guess, you know, when you look at like offensive linemen in the NFL, but again, they have vanity. You know what I mean? Like they're big. Yeah. And people think that offensive linemen are attractive, but they're also super fucking rich and like champions and on TV every week. So, and they live a life, you know, of, of luxury. They live in the lap of luxury. And for me, it's just not like that. There aren't really men that are larger that people say, wow, that man is standing up for body positivity. We could also talk about penis size in this instance, but that's not where I'm getting at. The only big guy that doesn't really have vanity, I mean, he has fame, but not really vanity because he of his choices, uh, that's big and, and, you know, typically unattractive that people love regardless is Danny DeVito. And I think that it's kind of hard to make Danny DeVito the face of male body positivity, but it might be necessary. Anyway, uh, so I was like, well, I'm a fat fuck. I'm a fat, ugly, worthless fuck that no one loves and no one is going to love and no one's ever going to want to have sex with ever again. I don't know how I got people to have sex with me in the first place, and I'm never going to reproduce because nobody wants to have fat, ugly fuck babies. Um, And nobody wants to see me naked because I'm a fat, ugly fuck. And so it was just this whole downward spiral of hating myself for my weight issues, which I've felt that way for years, but it really hit me hard now. Um, cause I felt so alone and I was like, well, I'm going to make a change. And so, you know, a few years ago, back in 2017, I had a membership, um, at planet fitness, Ivy and I got memberships. Um, you know, I got one because I was starting law school and I kind of wanted, I had gained some weight in my last year at Shepard. Um, because I was in a, a, a great relationship that allowed me to gain weight and still feel, uh, loved and desired. And I wanted to lose weight and, and, you know, sort of be more attractive going into law school because typically lawyers need to be attractive to be successful. Yeah. I don't know. It just happens. Um, and so I joined the gym and then she joined the gym to support me and moral support, which, you know, it was nice. And that whole summer we went every day and it was cool. And then I went to school and obviously ended my membership. And so I went to Planet Fitness um, February 16th. No, February 15th. It was the 15th. It was like immediately after the fight. And I said, hey, I'm going to restart my membership because I'm fat and need to lose weight. And the general manager uh, was like, okay. And I told him, I was like, hey, I had a black card membership before. I don't know if you know, I need to pay like a startup fee or anything. And they simply just restarted my old membership and I picked right up, you know, where I left off. I went home, got some gym clothes, went back and I've been going to the gym daily ever since. Um, I'm at the point now where I go twice a day. Uh, I go typically around three or four in the afternoon, sometimes two, depending on if I have errands, but typically around three, three thirty, four o'clock in the afternoon. And then recently, as in this week, when Brian gets off work at 9 p.m., I've been picking him up and going to the gym again at like 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. And so, you know, I've gotten to the point where I've been going twice a day, um, doing, you know, miles on the treadmill with steep incline. I'm doing, you know, arm and chest exercises. Um, I, you know, I'm kind of nervous to do ab exercises, 
because of the the weight, the shape, you know, the fat, and, and trying to get through, trying to burn through the fat to do the chest and ab exercises. Um, but because of my pericarditis and issues I've had with, um, you know, high blood pressure because of my weight, obviously, uh, my high blood pressure and um, my anxiety and, and, and whatnot, I've had issues um, with keeping my blood pressure at a, at a steady, healthy pace. Um, I know that chest exercises really helps uh, to, you know, strengthen your heart the muscles around and in your heart and then, you know, the different, uh, support pieces of the cardiovascular system, uh, outside of simply the heart and the lungs. And, you know, so that's been good. I've been doing the chest exercises, doing the arms, um, and in terms of results, you know, real quick, I've lost weight in my face. I've noticed that my double chin is, is disappearing. It's, you know, my chin, and the skin underneath my, the skin underneath my chin around my neck, which I guess you would call like the, um, like a gobbler if you're like a turkey, you know, like whatever that is, uh, the <laughs> giblets, I don't know. Um, underneath my neck has gotten tighter to the point where, if you just look at me straight in the face, I don't always have a double chin. Uh, it's tightening up, and the beard obviously helps as well. Uh, in my jawline, I can feel pieces of my jaw uh, naturally that I haven't seen or felt really for a while, for a few years. So that's nice. It's sort of tightening up in my jowls. Um, regarding the rest of my body, my arms are, are bigger than they've ever been, I think. Um, I never really worked on my arms anyway. They were just big because I did daily uh, manual labor, um, whether it be in high school or actually at work that, you know, built muscle. Now I'm actually like actively building muscle in my arms and it's gotten to the point where, you know, they're bigger than they've ever been and I get addicted to flexing them. Uh, honestly, it just, they look good and they feel good, uh, which is nice. Uh, I've also been working out my, uh, thighs because I have these uh, thigh tattoos and I want them to look good. You know, I, I need my thigh tattoos to maintain their appearance and not look like, you know, uh, like someone painted something on top of a cake. I don't want it to look, I don't want my thigh tattoos to look like icing painted on a cake. You know, I want it to be firm and, and stiff and, and muscular and, and toned and defined. And I, I really, you know, I feel a difference in my thighs, uh, especially in the top of my thighs. I need to lose the, the, uh, thigh fat actually in my inner thigh, you know, like where my genitals are. I need to lose the chub rub. Um, that's the big issue is, is with the inseam when I wear dress pants, you know, cause I have to wear suits for work and when I have a job and whatnot for law things and interviews. And so when you wear dress pants, you know, I worry about the inseam. A lot of it, uh, has to do with the fact that my inner thigh is so big when I sit down. Uh, but I've been working on that. Obviously, um, my lower legs, my calves, they've always been pretty muscular just because they have to, they have to be tree trunks to support this hefty being on top. Um, but they're getting defined. Obviously I have, you know, my, uh, maroon five tattoo on my left calf and I'm extremely proud of it. It's, you know, the most beautiful tattoo that I've ever seen. And, um, so I want to keep my calves nice because I got to show off this masterpiece. And I also intend on getting one on the other calf as well in the near future. And, 
So I've been working on my calves to try to keep that nice and tight for a tattoo. And I see some definition that I've never really seen before. You know, I, I see uh, muscles uh, show up in my calves that I had never really noticed before, which is cool. Um, and they're getting, not, you know, big and, and tight and they're sort of, you know, as my thighs are hopefully decreasing in size and my calves and lower legs are increasing in size, hopefully they balance out to the point where um, I look like a normal, healthy human being. Uh, and then obviously the big issues, the things that I'm really focusing on, uh, obviously the stomach is the belly is the issue. It always has been because it's weird that if you, if you look at me in certain angles, like whether it be like straight on, or if you look at me from like the chest up and the genitals down, I look like I could be thin, right? Like, isn't it, the fat distribution on my body is so strange. It's unique. It's like a pregnant woman almost where, you know, my legs, uh, I, I don't have an ass, which I also need to work on. I want bigger butt cheeks, um, bigger glutes, but you know, my legs down are, are big, but they look healthy and muscular. And then from my chest up, you know, where the, my freckle crown is, uh, I know that some of you can see it or have seen it up to my arms and shoulders and, and neck and head, I, I look like I could be a thin guy. I look like I did back in, you know, 2012. I really haven't changed much in terms of my, my features since 2012, you know, when I graduated or when I started my senior year of high school. But then the belly is what has changed. And the belly is what has grown since that time. And, of course, I've always had a belly growing up. I've always been the chubby kid you know, the bigger kid, the chubby kid, the fat kid. Um, I've been bullied for that my entire life. It's nothing I'm not used to, but now I'm the one doing the bullying. Isn't, isn't that crazy? I, I was bullied my entire life for being overweight. And now I'm the one bullying myself for being overweight. But the belly is what has grown. It really, you know, hit me those last two years at Shepherd when I was in relationships, when I was, it was almost like I became so comfortable with my sexual identity and being able to, attract sexual partners almost with ease um, that I sort of gave up on bettering myself because I didn't think that I needed to anymore because, you know, I was doing well. Um, and then I got into a healthy relationship and I started to gain weight from that. And then, you know, in law school, you, you definitely live a, a was a sedentary lifestyle. Um, and then obviously in the last, you know, year and a half, with doing everything on your computer, either at your dining room table or on your couch and not being able to go outside without fear of death, imminent death, you gain weight from just sitting on your ass. And so my dreams of a sedentary lifestyle turned into a reality to the point where I became this gelatinous blob like Jabba the Hutt and 638 Brewery became, you know, Jabba's palace. And so the belly is the big issue. And I have seen some difference in the belly, at least in how it looks and in the, in the love handles, I feel like the love handles, um, which obviously I care about, but not as much as the actual, you know, affront, the love handles are, are shrinking. They're changing in size, you know, they're getting smaller. And I've noticed that there are some dimples and some, I guess dimples would probably be the best uh, description. Dimples in the center of my stomach that I haven't seen um, in years. I'd say like three or four years. Um, dimples that, you know, I, I don't want to call it definition because that's not what it is, but it's fat 
that isn't filling those spaces anymore to the point where I can see those spaces that I remember seeing before. So some fat has, has left my stomach, um, to the point where I can see, you know, dimples and and creases in skin that I haven't seen in a while. And then the second thing I'm really focused on is, is the man boobs, you know, the breast, uh, tissue, the fat in my chest. And, you know, I feel like it's strange that I feel like people can be attracted to people with bellies. Everyone has bellies, you know, and I mean, every woman has a, a pouch of, of some sort, typically from, you know, if you're, um, you know, assigned uh, the female gender at birth and you're born with, you know, the traditionally female genitalia, um, you know, you typically have a pouch in your belly no matter what size you are, which is where your uterus is, you know, your uterus and your ovaries. And so you just have that natural pouch there, uh, which expands and contracts, um, you know, regularly. Um, and then with guys, you know, most guys have a belly, people call it a beer belly. It comes from just, you know, storing food, drinking, whatever. And you always have, you know, a change in size from, uh, being bloated from, you know, diet or from, you know, uh, beverages, liquids. Um, so I feel like people can kind of get over the belly. They can kind of look past that, uh, literally and figuratively, but it's kind of hard to look past a man with female, traditionally female, uh, appearing breasts. You know what I mean? Like no one ever says, man, the sexiest part of that guy is his man boob. No one ever says that. People say, oh, I like a guy like Santa Claus. People like Santa Claus because of his belly. People do not like Santa Claus because of his breasts underneath his jacket. You know what I'm saying? Nobody ever said, hey, Santa, nice tits. You know what I mean? Unless they were like ragging on like a mall Santa or whatever. Um, And that's the thing. You know, no one ever when you see a guy who's really muscular like The Rock, um, you say, hey, nice pecs. You know, he obviously takes a lot of time working on his pectorals like The Rock or Aaron Donald. You say, hey. He has large breasts, but they're more masculine, nice pecs. Then you see someone like me, or like I said, Santa Claus, or like the kid who does the truffle shuffle uh, in the Goonies. You say, hey, nice tits. You know what I mean? And that hurts. Uh, That hurts more than the stomach thing, you know? I I feel like when you're struggling with your physical appearance, when you're struggling with your body image, and when you're struggling with obesity uh, and how that affects your masculinity and how you view yourself. No one wants to be struggling with their masculinity and then have someone say, Hey, nice tits. You know what I mean? Um, and that's something that used to hurt like a motherfucker. And now it hurts when I say it. Um, and so that's really something I want to work on is, is losing the, the man boobs. And of course mine have never been like super huge. And luckily I have, you know, nice, small, um, petite, cute nipples. Obviously I'm going to talk myself up there. I have nice nipples. Uh, I think that they're attractive. I think that if my nipples were on someone else, I'd find them to be attractive, uh, nipples. Uh, so luckily I don't have, you know, like large, large, um, darker, more noticeable nipples that would draw attention to my man boobs when I'm not wearing a shirt. I think that they blend in pretty well. And I think the freckles helps and my natural uh, tan, my chest tan helps. Um, but you know, there, there are these sacks of fat on my chest that create a a more feminine appearance that, you know, hurts my own self image and my image of masculinity that I'm trying to portray. Um, cause everyone knows I have a, a traditionally feminine personality, uh, more so than others. You know, I have lots of feminine characteristics. 
Um, and I don't necessarily want my body to match that. You know, that's not how I identify. That's not how I want to, um, you know, uh, uh, project to society. So, you know, I, that's really the second main thing I want to work on is, is losing the, the man boobs. And I think that I've been doing well with that. I think that when I flex my chest, they actually move, change shape, and shrink when I flex. So if I'm looking at myself without a shirt in the mirror and I flex my arms, my shoulders, my back, my chest, um, they, they do actually tighten up. They do actually lift. And they do actually, you know, sort of shrink in size and and have a more masculine, you know, square pectoral shape instead of the traditionally uh, loose, rounder, uh, sagging shape of a breast. You know, and that's that's the main thing. And I understand now why people do wear bras or, or things that lift and support their breasts because, you know, that is that's a look, you know, uh, and I. I personally don't want mine to, to, um, you know, sort of, uh, hang down in any way. I don't want them to have any, you know, round or pointed shape similar to a budding breast. I don't want them to appear as large masses uh, of fat. I want them to take a more tight square pectoral shape that depicts muscle and depicts masculinity. And so that's something I'm working on. I think that you know, seeing the other things in my uh, other extremities, um, my appendages is nice, but when I see the the actual benefits in my abdomen, in my core, and uh, you know the bigger parts of my bodies, that's that's what's really beneficial. Um, additionally, you know, I know that this is going on for a while, and I apologize for that. But other benefits to exercise that I've experienced, obviously, the mental health change. I feel like if I have an issue, I can go work it out, um, you know, and I, I feel like it makes me feel better. I feel like I've accomplished something. I feel like I'm not just laying on my ass, letting life happen around me. I'm actually actively contributing to life and actively contributing to my own life, my own story. Um, so that's a positive feeling, the, the sense of accomplishment. Also, you know, it's nice to get out and interact with people and see people. Um, you know, they call it what is it, um, social fitnessing or something like that. Or I don't know what I forget what they call it at Planet Fitness. Obviously, everything is made for a COVID reality, but it's nice to interact with people and see people uh, and see people, you know, wearing masks but doing normal things and, and whatever. Obviously, there are also very attractive women at the gym, which is cool. Um, yeah. And so that's always nice. Um, I, f I do feel better, you know, like and physically I feel better. Like I feel like, you know, I can do things I couldn't do before. Um, I feel like if I was being chased by a bear, I'd have a much better chance of survival than say three weeks ago, which is good. Um, cause I don't think I could fight a bear yet, but I think I might be able to, you know, zigzag out of one. Um, what else? Uh, you know, it, it's definitely something to talk about with my friends and family. So it's a good conversation starter. It's something that people identify with and shared experience that creates a shared conversation and builds relationships. You know, I, it's nice to see how many people, you know, like my photos or send, you know, reactions to my photos or message me and talk about fitness. And it's cool. You know, I've talked to people I haven't talked to in years because of this. Um, 
and people are proud of me, which, you know, I'm trying not to build that external validation, but it, it feels good to, to know that I'm noticing changes and other people are noticing changes. Um, and one of the big things, it comes with cardiovascular health. And, you know, if I apologize if this is awkward for anyone, um, but I'll just be honest. So depression itself, mental illness, depression, and then treatment for mental illness, treatment for depression, the medication that you're put on for depression and anxiety really affect your libido. They really affect your sex drive and they affect your sexual health. Um, obviously a lot of it's mental, you know, a lot of sexuality is mental. Um, the majority of it is, I think 70, 30. Um, and then also, uh, I'm on medication obviously for my anxiety and depression, but I'm also on medication, um, regarding my cardiovascular health with, which also affects my libido. And, and so mentally, um, you know, the hormonal chemical, imbalance in my mind is affecting the hormones and chemicals in my genitalia. And then the other medication is affecting blood flow to my genitalia. So the physical and mental aspect of my genitalia has been affected by my health issues, um, to the point where, you know, I was lacking libido, I was lacking sexual health. I was having trouble, um, you know, I'll just be honest, dealing with, you know, uh, flying a flag, you know, popping a tent, you know what I'm saying? I was having issues, uh, with, uh, erections. It happens to everyone. Uh, and through this physical exercise, um, through, you know, this cardiovascular health. And again, this is like, I've been doing this for what, like three weeks now going on three weeks. Um, of going to the gym every day, twice, you know, sometimes twice a day, completely changing my diet, which is something I haven't even talked about, which I won't talk about in this podcast, but I'll talk about later, completely changing my diet, drinking water. I've eaten more salads in the last two weeks than I've eaten in my entire life. It's kind of the point where, uh, you know, not to toot my own horn literally or figuratively, not to play my own flute, but, uh, my, my buddy is working as well as he did back in the, in the heyday, in the glory days. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm out here. It just feels, it's nice. It's nice to be back, so to speak. And I feel like, you know, my dude is working overtime to make up for the time that we missed. And I feel like I'm getting the sexual health and the libido that I had back in college, um, back, which I've been lacking for a while, you know, going on two years, I've been lacking it. Um, which is cool. So that's definitely a benefit of exercises is your sexual health. Uh, obviously the cardiovascular aspect and also the mental health aspect. Uh, it's just making for, you know, this isn't a Viagra commercial, but you know, don't take Viagra, just go to Planet Fitness. It's much cheaper. Um, yeah. So that's pretty much, you know, my benefits of exercise. Um, I'm still dealing with the aspect of hating myself and, you know, dealing, it's not just hating myself. It's also dealing with the fact that my opinions about society's views on being fat and on obesity aren't just coming out of my ass. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not just pulling this out of my asshole. These are true. It's based on reality. People do look at fat people a certain way. There is fat phobia. There is, you know, judging people because of their physical appearance. We live in a a shallow, um, you know, aesthetic-based society uh, where, you know, there is pretty privilege. And it, you know... Um, it's just how it is. And and people look at fat people a certain way. Fat is considered unattractive. And, uh, you know, there are some justifications for that, I guess, in terms of health. Uh, and you know, people will say, well, I don't want to, I don't want to procreate 
or reproduce with someone who's overweight because I want my children to be healthy as well. And, and I get that, you know, it's a, it's a lifestyle thing. And, um, but still, you know, it, it hurts and it's something that you have to deal with. And it's, uh, you know, you're always taught when it comes to like body shaming or pointing things out, you know, if someone can't change something in a matter of seconds, uh, like if someone can't change something about themselves in a matter of seconds, don't bring it up. You know, like if you have a booger in your nose or if your shirt is buttoned the wrong way or your fly is down or you got like, you know, crumbs in your beard or something, um, you can point that out because they can change that immediately. You know what I mean? But if someone has, you know, someone's overweight or if someone has a scar or acne or, you know, a physical impairment or, um, you know, an amputation, you can't point that out. Don't point that out. That's that's rude because they can't change that. That's who they are. That's how they look. And they have to overcome the issues and build the confidence to go out publicly as that person. And saying something like that would definitely destroy the confidence that they had to build up in themselves just for that simple outing. Um, you know, so it's a reality that people look at people that are overweight a certain way. Um, and so I have to overcome my own issues personally throughout my weight loss journey, but I also have to overcome the external issues, like, you know, going back to external validation and how if I need external validation and I view society and society's views of fat people this way, I'm never going to get my external validation because society's always going to hate me for being fat. And so I have to learn to get over that because society's not going to provide that for me. Society, which hates fat people, is simply not going to give me the external validation that I need because I am fat. So I have to get that elsewhere while I deal with my internal issues of being fat and dealing with weight loss and losing weight. Um, which is difficult. You know, it's a battle on all fronts. It's a, it's a war on all fronts, but it's worth it. And dealing with those things with body shaming issues and obesity and becoming a healthy, you know, a healthier, better person. It's part of my journey. And I think that, you know, being where I am today, single, stuck at home alone, a sort of awaiting fate, uh, I think I'm in the right place to deal with these things because I have a clean slate and I'm free. I'm completely and utterly free. And that means that I, you know, the world is my oyster and I'm open to change because I, I don't have any responsibilities or anything, you know, holding me back or holding me down. I don't have to worry about, uh, you know, ruining the status quo because the status quo is empty. It's blank for me. And so because I have all this freedom with, without being tied down, I have the opportunity to better myself and it sucks. It hurts. It's difficult. It feels good to get it done though. And you know, that's pretty much it. So I'm about to sign off and, and publish this bad boy and hope that people enjoy it. Um, again, I appreciate everyone listening. I'm sorry, uh, for anyone who wasn't expecting all my, my deep, dark, topics of discussion, you know, I I should probably put a warning on some of these. Um, but yeah, I, anyone who's given me support, not just recently with my weight loss journey or with the bar, but anyone who's given me support in my entire life that's, that's listening to this. I just, I want to say thank you for putting up with me. Thank you for giving me the love and respect and having patience with me. That's, I appreciate the time and the effort, but I really appreciate the respect. Uh, and, and the patience because 
you know, I have my, my faults, I have my flaws and I'm learning to live with them and learning to combat them and trying to be a better person. Um, and to those listening who I may have hurt in the past, you know, I apologize. I'll never be able to forgive myself. Um, but just know that, you know, the pain that I've caused you and the pain that I've caused myself because of that is what fuels me to, to be better and to make change. So yeah, if I have any advice, um, watch WandaVision, eat some popcorn, go for a walk, you know, but yeah, tell someone you love them. Uh, so yeah, this is, uh, Late Nights with Lance. Uh, I'm your host, Lance Gunner Wines, uh, signing off from Winchester, Virginia. I love y'all. Uh, have a great night. Peace.